All right, today we are going to jump right into Scripture in week four in the final week of our series, Revival. Here is the story from John's account of Jesus' life. We're going to start in chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. Now, there's two kind of cool things. One, one kind of cool, one kind of interesting. The sister from the story of Lazarus, the one who was at first hesitant and was skeptical about Jesus, who actually resisted and was hesitant to go out to see Jesus again because Jesus hadn't shown up in time to heal her brother, you know, just in time to raise him from the dead. The same sister who was hesitant to go find Jesus is now the sister who's going to find Jesus to go visit his body. But while she's on the way to visit his body, realizes and is the first person that has a, a clue that something miraculous has happened, is the first person to get a sense that the resurrection has taken place. The, a, a skeptic is the first person to have a sense that the resurrection has happened. That's kind of cool. Now, the other interesting thing that's happening in, in this passage is there's, there's two disciples. There's Simon Peter, and there's a person that we, that, that's described as the other disciple or the one that Jesus loved. Now, who was John talking about when he talked about the other disciple? It's John. John has this weird habit of talking about himself in the third person. When there's something that's almost a little embarrassing or doesn't want to bring attention to himself, John talks about himself in the third person. John doesn't write about John as John. John calls himself the other disciple or the one that Jesus loved. Now, calling yourself the one that Jesus loved is maybe a little bit arrogant for my, for my taste, but that's how John described himself, the one that Jesus loved or as the other disciple. So that's, that's important to understand as we, as we read the next few, the next little chunk, chunk of this passage, here's what it says in verse, in verse four. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. John wanted everyone to know that in a foot race, he could beat Peter. That's like, I mean, in the middle of the story of the resurrection of Jesus, John's like, hey, I want everybody to know I'm fast. Sure, Peter might have walked on water, but on land, it's John time. All right, that's, that, that's, that's what John wanted everyone to understand. Verse five says, stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, because remember, this, you know, I, I beat Peter there, so he, had, you know, he was following me. He was eating my dust. Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Fun fact, Jesus was tidy. When Jesus raised from the dead, he decided to fold his clothes and put them neatly in a corner. Um, now, John tells, us that John tells us that John got there first, but he wasn't just going to walk into a dead guy's tomb because that's kind of a weird thing to do. But when Peter got there, Peter walked right into the dead guy's tomb because Peter is a little bit weird. Do you sense that there's a little bit of a rivalry going on? between John and Peter. John wanted us to know that he got there first and that he wasn't so weird that he was just going to walk into a dead person's tomb. That was left up to Peter. So in verse 8, it says this, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were all staying. Here's a quick truth. Belief comes before understanding belief comes before understanding. They didn't understand, but they believed. They didn't see, 
but they still believed. In fact, at this moment in time, they believed and their faith grew because of what they did not see, because of what they could not see, that they were supposed to be looking at a dead man's body in a dead man's tomb. And while they were in a tomb, there was no body. And all of a sudden they begin to wonder, could he have actually pulled off the thing that he talked about all the time? Could he, could he have actually pulled off his death and his resurrection just as he predicted? We can't see it and we don't understand it, but we can still believe it. See, belief often comes before understanding for you and for me too. There are plenty of moments in life where we don't understand and we won't understand, but we can still believe because of what we've seen, because of what we know, and because ultimately of who we know, the one we know. That you don't have to understand every circumstance in life. Hi, 2020. We don't have to understand every circumstance of life to trust the one who is in control of every circumstance of life. Story goes on in verse 11. But Mary, again, this is the story of Mary. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I, and I don't know where they've put him. Now, this, this is interesting. Mary was a close friend of Jesus, but Mary hadn't been around all of the times that Jesus had predicted his own death and his own resurrection. That was something that Jesus only did with his closest followers when, when the 12 disciples were around. This was something that Jesus only did with a select few, which is an interesting point because Mary does not understand what's going on because she was not close enough to Jesus to hear him talk about what he was ultimately going to do. And this is a, an important truth. The closer you stay to Jesus, the less likely you are to confuse what Jesus is doing. See, Mary liked Jesus and trusted Jesus, was a friend of Jesus, but she never placed an emphasis on being that close to Jesus. She liked a lot of what Jesus was doing, liked a lot of what Jesus was saying, but never pushed herself to get close enough to hear Jesus talk about what he was ultimately there to do. So she missed it. And she misunderstood what was happening right now. So when Mary sees an empty tomb, she assumes someone has stolen the body because after all, dead people stay dead unless Jesus shows up to raise the dead, but they killed Jesus. Surely the story ended there, right? Because Jesus couldn't have raised himself from the dead, right? In verse 14, it says this, having said this, she turned around, and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know who it was. Woman, Jesus said to her, because Jesus knew how women like to be talked to. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away, and I'll, and I'll take care of him. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And then Jesus said, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the risen Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. The first person entrusted with proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the news of the resurrection of Jesus was a woman. Interesting. I'll just leave it at that. 
Here's the great news. Jesus rose from the dead. This is the headline of John chapter 20. Jesus rose from the dead. This is the foundation of our faith. This is why we believe Jesus was right about everything else that he had said. This is also why for weeks we've been saying that, that revival is not an event. Revival is a person. Because while we've been saying that only Jesus has the power to raise the dead to life, it's actually bigger than that. As Jesus claimed about himself in the story of Lazarus, when Jesus rose from the dead himself, it proved that he truly was and is the resurrection and the life. Jesus has the power to raise you because he is resurrection. He has power to raise you because he is life. He has the power to revive you because he is revival. That's who Jesus is. Revival is not an event. Revival is not something we go to. Revival is a person. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so now last week I mentioned that if people can have Christmas in July, we can celebrate Easter in August. We can do that. As Jesus followers, our very life and our every breath should be lived remembering the cross and the empty grave. But, but here's why I really want to talk about this today. So often, even when we talk about this on Easter, we gather together and we to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but not really pause and remember why the resurrection is so important. We remember that it happened, but we don't always talk about why it's so important, what Jesus did for us when he rose from the dead, what Jesus' resurrection life actually means for us. And if I can take it a step further, so often when we gather together as Christians on Easter, as Jesus followers on Easter, when we gather together on Easter, we actually spend more time talking about Good Friday. We spend more time talking about Jesus's death and what Jesus accomplished for us in his death. And while it's amazing, I would suggest that Jesus actually did more for us and accomplished more for us in his resurrection even than he did in his death. And to be fair, like, like to, to, to be completely honest, what Jesus did at the cross is incredible. What Jesus did at the cross is incredible and it's undeniable. It's the first half of the gospel that Jesus lived a sinless life so that he could go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice. And on the cross, he took the weight of our sin and our shame and our past and our guilt and our bad choices and our rejection and our rebellion against God and he died for all of it. He died for all of it so that the power of sin and shame and past and guilt and rebellion could die with him. He could pay the price. This is amazing. He could pay the price for us because he did not have a price to pay for himself. He could break the power of sin and shame because it had never held power over him. That's what Jesus did at the cross. And it's amazing. And we should be grateful for it every single day of our lives. But as amazing as it is what Jesus did for us on the cross, I want to today talk about what Jesus did when he rose from the dead, when he came out of the empty tomb, because the new life that we are called to walk in, the new life that we follow Jesus into, is something worth talking about, something worth celebrating, and something that we don't talk about enough. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage from the book of Colossians, from the letter of Colossians, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city called Colossae. And in this letter, in the first chapter, Paul begins to talk about what Jesus did at the cross and what Jesus did as he raised from the dead and what Jesus ultimately invites every single one of us into as he rose from the dead. 
Here's, here's, here's what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter one. He said, he, he being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. We have seen God because we saw Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. See, in, in most Bibles and in, in most translations, this section is titled the supremacy of Christ, that he's in first place and it is no competition, that when it comes to creation, when it comes to the way that the world was made, and when it comes to the, world, the way the world holds together, there is no competition. Jesus is in first place. Jesus rules and reigns. He is supreme over everything. And in these three verses, Paul makes the statement that Jesus, the Son of God, was first in all creation. And it was in fact the source of all creation, that everything was created by him, the things that we see and the things that we don't see and the things that we don't understand, that beyond what we can see and understand on the biggest scales and beyond what we can comprehend on the tiniest of scales, Jesus is the reason it exists and Jesus is the thing that holds it all together. Now, what I'm about to talk about, I'm not even going to remotely try to take credit for it. This is, this is from a, a series of sermons that a, a pastor named Louis Giglio um, preached a few years ago. In this series, he, it was a series called How Great Is Our God? And he was talking about this idea. It was built around this passage of scripture that as far out as you can go and as, and as far as you can look into the human creation, there's Jesus. He is the source who, who created it all. He, you can see him in all of creation. You can see him at the tiniest little details of life. And it's so interesting as he talked about this, as he built this message around this idea that Jesus is firstborn over all creation. He's present in all creation. You can see him everywhere you look, as far out as you can go and as, and as far in as you can go, you see Jesus. He talked about, he talked about two different things. One was this idea of uh, this, not an idea, but an actual place in, our, in, in the universe called the Whirlpool Galaxy. From Earth, it's 31 million light years away. It's parallel to the Milky Way. I don't know how you figure that out when you start talking about universes, what's parallel and what's not, but somehow scientists and, and, and astronauts have figured out that this is somehow parallel to our, to our solar system. It's, 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 or to our, to our galaxy. It's the Whirlpool Galaxy, 31 million light years away. It's hundreds of stars. And at the center of the Whirlpool Galaxy, this is interesting, as the Hubble telescope looked out into the Whirlpool Galaxy, they noticed that at the center of it, there's this black hole, there's this black hole shape, there's this black hole shape, this black hole formation, and it looks like this. If you look at that picture, you might think, huh, that almost looks unmistakably like the cross. And this is about as far out as humans have been able to look into the universe, into the galaxy, into, into, into the created world that, that is beyond our world. This is about as far out as humans have been able, been able to look. And what's amazing about that, what takes my breath away when I hear things like that, as far out as humans have seen with the Earth's greatest telescopes, there's the cross, there's Jesus. Simultaneously, when you dig deep into cellular structure for human life, when you get down to some of the absolute building blocks of human cells and human life, there's a protein called laminin. Scientists have actually called this protein God's superglue because it's the protein that helps everything else connect and hold together on the cellular level. Now, there's another reason they call this God's superglue. See, here's what laminin 
actually looks like. Look at that picture. Now, when you look at the picture, you might be tempted to go, boy, that kind of looks like a cross. Here's why, here's why scientists call this God's superglue. When scientists try to draw what laminin structure actually looks like, here's what they draw. It's a perfect cross. This is, this is just amazing. As far out as humanity can see and as microscopic as humans can look inside of ourselves, there's the cross. There's Jesus. He is supreme in all creation. He was there at the beginning. He's there as far as the eye can see, and he's there at the most fundamental building block levels of life. Jesus is supreme. He is first place in all creation. The, verse go, the passage goes on. In verse 18, he says this, He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, obviously, biblical scholars know more than I do about ancient languages and about actual biblical translation and everything. So when they give a section of Scripture a title, and, and I don't like their title, they're probably right, and I'm probably wrong. That being said, if I was titling sections of Scripture, I would want to give a new title starting in verse 18. I wouldn't want this to be Jesus, the, the supremacy of Christ. I would want to title it this way, Jesus leads the way to life. Now, let me explain and ask a question that, that hopefully will help us understand this. Um, how many of you grew up in a home where you were not the only child? And would you actually help me by responding to this? If you grew up in a home where you were not the only child, you had brothers, you had sisters, you had siblings, would you hit so something on the emoji bar right now? You can hit whatever emotion that brought out of you. For some of you, it's going to be anger. For some of you, it's going to be a lot of laughter. For some, it's going to be like, it's hugs and it's care. I don't, I don't really mind, you know, whatever emotion that brings out of you, just go ahead and respond with it right now. And then let me ask for a second set of, of responses. How many of you watching right now, would you hit the emoji bar again if you were the oldest child, if you were the firstborn, if you were the oldest, go ahead and hit the emoji bar. That's going to be me. That's going to be Jalen. There's going to be a bunch of you guys, and, 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 and it's going to be awesome to see and, and find out who's, who's firstborn children. Now, here's, here's the reason I asked that. Kind of a funny thing here. Jalen and I, we are both firstborn children in, in our family, um, which if you spend enough time around us, you'd be like, duh, we would, we would guess that because you're both about as stubborn and as hard-headed hard and strong-willed as people can be. You don't even like to admit when you're wrong. In fact, when you're wrong, you dig in your heels just to say how right you are even when you know you're wrong. And if you would say that to me, I would say, thank you for the compliment, which just verifies the fact that I am a firstborn. Now, when we had Noble, I noticed this strange thing that happened. I think it was so obvious to people that we had no idea what we were doing, that people assumed we were new parents. And so when people would come up and they would see baby Noble with you know, with these new new parents who apparently had no idea what they were doing, they assumed that she was our only child. But no one ever asked us, is she your only child? No one ever said that. The question that people asked was, is she your first? Is she your first? No one asked, is she your only? Their assumption, and honestly, our assumption, when we talked about her, we, 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 didn't, we never said, yeah, she, no, she's our only we said, yeah, she's our first. Because the assumption is, if you've got one, you're probably going to have more. If you've got one, there's probably more that will come. So here's the thing. This is, this is important for us to understand as Paul talked about Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. When you call someone first, you assume more will follow. When you call someone first, you assume more will follow. And here's why this matters to this verse. Paul didn't call Jesus God's only 
son. He called him the firstborn from the dead. And if Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the assumption and the implication is that more will follow Jesus from death to life and experience everything that he has to offer and receive everything that he has for us as he revives our hearts, our minds, and everything else about us. And everything that follows in these next few verses, everything that follows is in the rest of the passage is what we're supposed to experience as we follow everything that we're supposed to follow Jesus into and as sons and daughters living in Jesus's resurrection family. Here's what Paul said in starting verse 19. He said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's beautiful. That's unbelievable. And that explains what we should experience when we follow Jesus out of the graves of our sin, out of our shame, out of our brokenness, out of the death that we have allowed to take over in our lives. What we should experience, what's ours as sons and daughters in this new family of God. And so here's the thing. To close out today, I want to talk about what Jesus raised from the dead when Jesus raised from the dead and what we're all supposed to follow Jesus into as we follow him out of the grave. Here's what Jesus raised to life when Jesus was raised to life. Here's what he raised to life for us. He raised to life clarity about God. See, this is, this is beautiful. Paul in that passage said all the fullness of God was present in Jesus. All, not some, not a little bit, all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. Jesus actually, this is crazy, Jesus actually said that about himself while he was walking the earth when he called, when he said that he and the Father were one. Everyone laughed at him because you can't say that about God. But after Jesus raised from the dead, we take everything he said about himself seriously. We believe everything that he said about himself because if you can predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, we take what you say seriously. So here's the thing. Because of Jesus, you don't have to wonder what God is like. You have clarity about what God is like. Because of Jesus, you don't have to interpret the goodness of God through the lens of the goodness or badness of life. Because of Jesus, we know the Father by seeing the Son. We know the Father by seeing the Son. We know the Father by seeing the Son. And so here's some things that we can be crystal clear about when it comes to our Heavenly Father because of what we've seen in the Son. First thing, God is love. God is love. Because Jesus was love personified, we know that God is love. See, you have had questions at times in your life of whether or not God was loving. He is. And the way that you can know that He is, is that as Jesus walked the earth, he personified love, and he called his followers to follow his lead. He loved so much that he laid down his life for you before you had ever done anything for him, before you'd ever thought about him. He laid his life down for you. That's how much love he has for you. You can know that God the Father is in love by looking at the life of the Son, because all of the fullness of the Father was present in the life of the Son. Here's another thing that you can know. God comes close. 
Because Jesus came close, you can know that God does not stay distant, but he comes close to you in your darkest hours, on your best day, and on every day in between. God comes close. God does not stay distant. He comes close to you and close to me. Third thing you can know is that God is available to all because Jesus made himself available to all. You can know that there is no exclusive club that gets more access to God than anyone else. Every race, every social and economic class, people of every political party were welcomed by Jesus so that you can know that you are welcomed by your heavenly Father. People from all backgrounds were invited to be close to Jesus so that you can know that you are invited into a relationship with your heavenly father. Because of Jesus' resurrection life, you never have to wonder what God your heavenly father is like. You can see and know him clearly because you look at the son. Here's the second thing that Jesus raised to life for us. He raised to life connection with God. I love, I love the language that Paul uses here to explain what Jesus did and what Jesus does for uh, he explains where we find ourselves on our own. And where we find ourselves on our own is alienated from God and hostile toward God. Alienated from God and hostile toward God. Far from him and fighting against him. Far from him and fighting against him. It's a relationship that's broken with little hope of ever working. Essentially, there is no relationship. There is no connection. That's where we always end up. This is important. That, that is, that's where we always end up in our own effort. That's even where we end up through our own religious efforts. And that's where we always find ourselves in relation to our Heavenly Father without Jesus. But then Paul explains where we find ourselves in relation to God as we follow Jesus out of the grave. And here's where we find ourselves. Reconciled to God and at peace with God. Reconciled to God and peace with God with God. In other words, it's an entirely different story. It is night and day. We are now connected to our heavenly father because of Jesus. It's a whole different story. It's a whole new life. The conflict is over because Jesus won the war. The relationship has been reconciled, has been restored. You can have a relationship and a connection with your heavenly father because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' new life, we know that we can have a connection with our Heavenly Father. You have peace with God, not because of anything that you have done, but because of who you choose to trust. Because of Jesus, you can experience real and lasting connection with your Heavenly Father. The God who created you, the God who knows you, the God who knows every good and bad thing about you. And He wants a connection with you so much that He sent His Son to be the firstborn of a whole new family. And here's the third thing that Jesus raised to life for every single one of us. We believe that Jesus raised to life a confidence of eternity with God. See, as a church and as a pastor, we believe that heaven and hell are real places, that there is a life to come for every one of us when this life comes to a close. And we believe that everyone will spend eternity somewhere. Everyone will spend eternity somewhere, which means that I will spend eternity somewhere and you will spend eternity somewhere. And what we believe scripture points to is the idea that people receive in eternity what they choose in the temporary. That in other, in other words, what we choose in this life and who we choose in this life determines what we will experience in the life to come. 
And what's so amazing about trusting the resurrection of Jesus is this, is that Jesus' resurrected life impacts your life in the here and now, and it determines your life then and there. See, in the here and now, the resurrection provides connection and clarity. In the life to come, it provides a confidence that you will spend eternity in the presence, in the perfect presence of God, in perfect peace with God. That that's the future and that that's the life that awaits you when this life comes to a close. See, that is what Jesus' resurrection life makes available for you and for me. It's a life beyond anything that you can earn or attain on your own. It only comes from Jesus. Life forgiven of your sin, life where you know God, life where you have peace with God and connection with your heavenly Father, and life in the here and now where you're confident of the life to come. Only, only Jesus can raise the dead to life, and only Jesus can raise you to that life. Now, in a moment, we're gonna, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray to, to, close, to close the message today. But if you today would say, I want to make the decision to let Jesus be my revival and to be my reviver, I need the resurrection and the life that only he can bring. I want to ask you right now, we're going to put up a little link in the, in the comment section and in the chat on this video. And if you are making a decision to trust Jesus, maybe for the first time, or that you're coming back to Jesus today, and beginning new, beginning a fresh relationship with him, I want you to click on that link to let us know that you're making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And then we'll get in touch with you this week to let you know some next steps that you could take in following him. But if you want to pray that, if you want to make that decision today, I'm going to, I'm going to pray as if we're making a decision to follow Christ because some of you are making that decision right now. And then we'll pray to close. So let's pray together today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you love us more than we could possibly imagine. Thank you for Jesus' death on the cross that paid the price for our sins that we could not pay for ourselves. And thank you for his resurrection life that he overcame sin, the grave, death. He overcame everything so that we could be raised to a new life in you. Today, we place our trust in Jesus. We place our trust in what you have done for us, and we thank you for that. God, please forgive us of our sins. Help us to experience the forgiveness of sins that Jesus made available on the cross. Please help us to experience the resurrection life that you have for us as we look to you and trust you and follow you with everything that we have. And Lord, today, I pray for every single one of us that we would follow you into the life that Jesus made available for us. Help us to experience the, the connection with you that Jesus made available for us. Help us to stop fighting you. Help us to find ourselves close to you. Help us to find ourselves reconciled and restored to you. Help us to find ourselves at peace with you. God, thank you that we can see you clearly because of what we see in Jesus, that we don't have to wonder anymore what you're like, but we can know because we see it in the Son. And God, thank you for the confidence that we have when it comes to eternity, that there is a life with you that awaits when this life is closed. Help us to choose that today. And so God, thank you that you are our revival. Thank you that revival is not just an event. Thank you that it's so much better than that. Thank you that revival is not just some service that we go to. Thank you that you're so much better than that. Thank you that revival is Jesus. And thank you that we can know him and by knowing him, we can know you. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.